The world is chock full of hidden attractions, cool sights, and unusual things. And if you know where to look, you'll find some of those wondrous discoveries right here in New York City. Hi, I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up, we'll pay a visit to a venue in the Nolita neighborhood of Manhattan that takes a page from the ancient catacombs in Europe. On the left and right side of the room, you have what is combined 2,700 gold-leafed skulls. But first, a cabinet of curiosities on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Obscura Antiques and Oddities at 207 Avenue A sells a wide variety of weird wares. The owners, Mike Zone and Evan Michelson, scour flea markets, auctions, and estate sales to stock their store. I recently paid them a visit. My name's Evan Michelson, and I am co-owner of Obscura Antiques and Oddities here in the East Village of New York City. I'm Mike Zoe, and I'm the other co-owner of Obscura Antiques and Oddities. Uh, The East Village's uh, oldest lasting uh, oddities store, I guess it would be. Probably New York's oldest oddities store. How old is this oddities store? We're old. We're old, yeah, (laughs) we're we're so old. Um, The store started in the early 90s, actually. A gentleman started a business here, and he left, and then Mike and I moved in, and um, we continued it. And we actually had no long-range plans. We both just loved these things, and we collect, and it turned into a project, and then it turned into a life. I mean, in one form or another, about 24 years, almost, almost quarter of a century which is long for any business, let alone a business selling goofy stuff like we sell. So, so you yourselves were collectors before taking over the shop? Uh, yes. I was actually more of a performance artist who spent all our money on um, equipment. I was a musician. Um, I started collecting around the time the store opened. Mike, however, collected things. Like what, Mike? Well, I started in, in cameras, photography, optical, stuff like that, but quickly moved into... Uh, natural history, kind of oddball stuff, fraternal stuff. Uh, the gentleman, his name was Adrian, who had a shop many, many years ago that Evan and I both became part of at one point. Um, I used to sell things to him. I used to buy things from him, hang out all the time. And, you know, you, you're around a business long enough, and sometimes you become part of that business. And we both, through different avenues, we're, we're business partners through pure dumb luck. I was going to ask you the question, <laughs> how did you two meet? I was actually on my way to um, a band rehearsal, and I was going to a, a restaurant that is now defunct on B and 10th. And I thought, why don't I walk down 10th Street instead of 9th Street? That's a very New York thing. Like, you never walk down 10th Street. This was in the bad old days, in about 1991. And... I walked past the shop that it looked like a ghost ship. It looked like it had been there since the 20s or 30s. And there was this strange little man there who knew everything about everything. It was quite aggressive, uh, aggressively friendly. And um, I walked in the store and I said to him that this looks like the inside of my mind. I said, this looks like every really good nightmare I've ever had. And that was Adrian. And um, uh, we joined forces and um, basically uh, never stopped doing this. So this is your second location, though, right? Technically, it's our third. Your third? Uh, yeah, we uh, started off on 10th Street, uh, 263 East 10th Street, and then we moved to 280 East 10th Street, and now we're at 207 Avenue A, right below 13th Street, but always in the East Village, always within a, a three-block radius of where we are. So tell me about the things that you have here in this cabinet of curiosities. Well put. Um, this is a cabinet of curiosities. It's a microcosm of the world. So everything's here. As Mike said, we specialize in natural history, um, history of medicine, history of science. And this cabinet is filled with paper. And then we have things hanging from the ceiling as this traditional cabinet of curiosities. So lots of antlers in here. There's lots of antlers at the moment, but things 
kind of come and go. But we always have some road deer antlers here. In but. the business, you never know what you're going to find. It's not like there's a catalog we order out of. Uh, Evan and I wake up and go to early and go to different markets, and you, we, we cover a lot of ground. And, you know, some days you might find amazing stuff. Sometimes you find nothing. And even though it changes, it's always the same kind of quirky, little off-center, not your traditional grandma antiques and stuff. It's um, It's about, you know, life, and it's about death, and it's about everything in between and every aspect of it but a little on the quirky side even though some things are quirkier than others we do have things like you know human heads and stuff like that uh medical human heads uh which are not for sale but on display for those who like to view them in our store uh but it always it always has the same vibe everything you see in this shop has been selected by either evan or or, or i or by me um so it's kind of like our visions of of yeah. interesting quirky stuff i call it life curated and a lot of people come in and they say, what is this? They, they ask that at the old shop, especially because we didn't have regular hours. Um, the lights weren't always on. Um, we didn't always have running water. It was, <laughs> we really, like, we, we paid our dues. East Village, tenement dues. There was never glass in the windows. We didn't have a radiator. And people would come in and we'd just be sitting there and they'd go, what, what is this place? And we'd say, what do you think it is? I mean, it, it, <laughs> like, is yeah. this a front or something? Is this installation? You live here? Yeah, they could yeah. not fathom why we would be sitting here surrounded by, um, you know, taxidermy animals and old maps and cut crystal Victorian goblets. But, um, yeah, we told them, use your imagination. I'm always interested in what they think it is. So I say, take a look around and then tell me what you think it is. When we started this back years ago, we sh- totally should have... Uh, trademark that antiques and oddities thing it seems like everyone and their cousin has opened up an antiques and oddities shop out there well you guys became famous you had your own reality tv show called oddities yeah and that was also a complete fluke we didn't have an agent we didn't pitch it they found us it's a long story but the the network sent out a production company and they found us what network was that uh, that was Science Channel, Discovery Science. And they sent out a production company, and they interviewed us, and they interviewed a bunch of people with what they thought of as interesting science-based businesses. And they said, okay, we'll get back to you. We talked for like 10 minutes on camera, and then they said, we'll get back to you. And they ke- got back to us, and they said, you have a show. Congratulations. And it was one of the weirder things. That's Although the other funny thing about that was they asked, you know, well, what's different about your, sh- about your shop? And we explained the stuff we deal in, the people we deal in. It's, it's very East Village, our shop. And um, they're like, oh, yeah, right, right, you guys sell weird stuff. So we filmed a bunch of episodes, and we got a call from the head of the production company. He's like, you know, when you guys said you sell weird stuff and you deal with interesting people, I figured, yeah, yeah, right, right. He said until he saw really what we do, they had no idea. They said it was the, you, couldn't, you couldn't write it. It would be unbelievable if you try to write the, the stuff that we're dealing and who we're dealing with and all this other good stuff. It really is kind of kooky, you know. To How would you describe your clientele? Diverse. Uh, it is the people you'd probably expect, and a lot of people you would not expect. You know, some people wear their weirdo on the inside, somewhere on the outside. We get people who look like they walked out of a boardroom, a board meeting. You know, like, um, and we also get people with pierced everything. So it's it, everything in between. It's 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 an interesting clientele. You can never, you know, judge a, a book by its cover, as they say. One thing I love is that people who lived in the East Village or who moved away, when the show came on the air, it was really East Village, and it was our intention. Our friends and customers came in, and it's really about this place in the East Village that was important to us, and the show reflected that. How long did the show run? It ran for five seasons. That's Um, a long time. 
It was. It was. Six, but even still. It was 74 episodes, but it, it gets a little dicey because some seasons were 25 shows long, which could count as two. It's a little it's into the weeds. It was, yeah. yeah. Like, they, they go by cycles in that thing. It's not a true season. Cycle is a 12-month period for them. And so, yeah, but 74 episodes they aired. And oh. what did the show do for the shop? It certainly raised our, <laughs> it raised our profile. Obscura was always everybody's best kept secret. So people loved the shop, and but they'd kind of hide it. To, it, was, it was a place where they got gifts for people, uh, but they didn't want the people to figure it out for themselves. But um, the show obviously gave us international visibility, which we're still enjoying. So yes. we're really grateful for it. It's in six languages that we know of, and uh, seen international because uh, Discovery Channel, which owns Science, there are over a billion uh, screens worldwide they're in. So it's uh, we get people from everywhere. It's English, of course, uh, Spanish, French. Brazilian, Portuguese, Russian, and Mandarin Chinese, I found out recently. So you're ringing somebody up now. What are you ringing up? Um, I'm ringing up a couple of uh, Magic Lantern slides. These are um, natural history. That's like a skate and some kind of fish. Uh, this is a, uh, a turtle shell, a red ear slider turtle shell. And this is a, uh, a knife made from a deer hoof. This one is actually from, um, where is this from? Germany. Uh, these are traditional traditional hunting knives. They use um, roe deer antlers or feet. Those little antlers are roe deer antlers, and they make these uh, knives out of them. How far and wide do you travel to collect things? We basically stay in this area. Um, the northeastern United States is rich in weird stuff. Um, there's always a lot of money here. There's a lot of manufacturing, a lot of culture, um, a lot of immigration. So it's a very, very rich part of the country and has been for a long time. And when I say rich, I mean culturally rich. Um, we do buy things from other countries. But believe it or not, the area we're in right now is actually is uh, the richest area for weird, unusual, beautiful, strange stuff. What's the strangest thing you've discovered? That's a, a difficult question a lot of people ask. I, I'll tell you what I think the weirdest thing is. And you can tell them that we bought that mummy head, that medical mummification human head, um, from an ear doctor on Long Island. And he had a bunch of ear-related things. And one of them was a mounted mastoid bone. And inside, where the inner ear would be, was a tape dispenser with wax tape. So it was like a 19th century anatomical mounting of the part of the skull where the ear is, and a tape dispenser at the same time. At least it looked time. like that. I guess we never really figured out why or why. It had. A, it looked like a tape dispenser. They, I mean, they all had these wax tape. Yeah, like a roll so, of wound up wax tape. I mean, it looked like nothing but a dispenser. Yeah. Now, we've both seen a lot of things over the decades, and that's the only one of those I have ever seen. So I'm going to say that's the weirdest, um, but weird is so subjective. Mike, what has wowed you most? That's hard to say. I mean, we have a few pieces here that are not for sale. Like I said, we like to keep some things on hand. Like, we have this uh, full human head. We also have a half human head, and we have an Egyptian mummy hand. Uh, the hand I like, it's about 3,500 years old. It's wearing a ring. It was brought back to the States in the 1920s, back, I guess, when you could bring this stuff in. And um, it's someone's hand. That's, and we showed an Egyptologist, and he dated the ring. It's made of faience. It has uh, scarab and hieroglyphs on the back of it. But it's just, you look at that, like... Where has that? Who was that? And where did that come from? And where's that been? And and you know a lot, a lot of stuff is kind of like that. Um, 
we have these fossilized ear bones of a whale. It's amazing. I mean, where has this been? And, you know, the depths of the ocean and over millennia where it's just, it's, it's kind of neat stuff to really think about where it comes from. And, and we just have it for a little while, really. And then where is this going to be in the future? Someone else will have it down the road. It's, it's sort of, you know, once you really think about the journey of this stuff, I find that quite fascinating. Evan, Mike mentioned the 1920s. Speaking of the 1920s, you have some old music playing in the background here. Yeah, we do. Um, that is an ode to the gentleman who opened the shop, Adrian Gilbo. Always had hot jazz playing, and it was kind of perfect. You know, I'm a like a total immersion esthete, so I like a place to smell right and sound right as well as look right. I also love time travel, so when you walk in here, it could be any period. You're definitely walking into the past, and it kind of sounds like the past, too, but there's nothing like hot jazz. That's all we play. And when you walk in, you're greeted by a two-headed something or other. What is that? Yeah, that's a two-headed calf. Uh, those are conjoined calves. So that's actually a lot more common than people would think. It's a sort of a classic sideshow animal, a classic dime museum piece, where it's basically calves that did not fully develop into twins. So it's got two heads, and it's got these spiraling legs sticking out of the back, which is what actually blows everyone's mind, like more than the heads is those little legs. But it was born that way, and that's sort of uh, one of the very few pieces that's in our permanent collection. He's sort of our pet. He's our figurehead. We're very fond of him. You also have an ostrich in here. Yeah, the ostrich is funny. People often miss it. Um, I think because it's a little dark and it's a little high up. But uh, yeah, they came out of an auction in Pennsylvania. It had all this big game stuff and the ostrich. Uh, there's no legs on it. It's actually a wall mount. But uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. I, just an, an unusual piece of taxidermy. But we've had things like um, we've had we had a horse head. We've had actually had a couple of horse heads over the years. Um, the weirder stuff, you know, the, the monkeys, the domestic animals, the freak animals. The, I mean, we do other stuff too. You know, we have squirrels and you know bears and stuff like that. Um, but the weirder stuff, the stranger things, you know, like you look at that, you're like, why would someone mount that? But that, that's the best stuff. You know, the stuff that you ask questions like why, and it's curious, and then. What were they thinking? But, you know, that's, that's kind of uh, what, what, what interests us. <laughs> Morbid curiosity. It's the, the tension, the friction of the attraction repulsion thing, and it just, it, it's, it's, it's what it's all about. So when you're out there at a flea market, how would you describe your method in terms of looking and making sure that you catch something out there that's worth your shop's attention? Right. Well, it's, it's interesting when we were out there. I mean, Evan and I have been in this business for a year. I mean, we're talking decades. And it's, it's a lot of networking that goes on, too. I mean, we both hand out cards. You talk to people. They know what you're looking for. And everyone's people like, hey, you like that weird crap? Here, Carol, I want to show you something. You know, the back of their van. That helps a lot. Other than that, you really have to start scanning. And, you know, like a friend of mine does mid-century modern furniture. To him, he looks for chrome. He sees something chrome, he's like a fish, you know, <laughs> to allure. But with us, there's so many different things. You know, you see a head, you're like, oh, is that a wax head or is that a mannequin head? You'll see a board. I'm like, is that a game board? Is that a Ouija board? Or is that like a Monopoly? Um, so you're constantly uh, in your head processing what you're looking at. Again, sometimes it's a shape or a form or, or a look of something. And sometimes it's just the table filled with stuff. And you just have to sit there and, like, look through it. You're scanning, like, oh, wait, what's that? And, again, it may not fit into our general categories, but it has, it has that look. It has that aesthetic. It's it, it, you know it when you see it. It's like art. Hard, the, hard to explain. In the business, it's called the eye, and it, you either have the eye or you don't, and it's not something that can be taught. And it's just something I call it um, collecting objects that resonate. 
when I resonate with something and I love it, I know it's the right thing to bring into the store. And again, it doesn't have to be the most expensive or rare thing on the table, but it does have to tell a really interesting story. How have you watched this neighborhood change over the years, the East Village, since you have been here for more than two decades, Evan? Yeah, um, like I said, I, I was a performance artist here in the East Village, and um, I, I, I played in these streets. Um, there was a collective unconscious, which people may know. Um, uh, my husband and I worked with them, and when this store started, the rent was $250. Um, yeah, but it was also a lot more dangerous. There were two drug fronts on our block, and each corner was a drug corner. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. It, it's not, not to rose-color glasses it, but it it was a creative engine. And Lower East Side wasn't just a creative engine for New York. It was like a creative engine for the country, one of them. That's sort of gone because it's, as everyone knows, it's gentrified and everybody's been priced out. So a lot of the creativity that made the East Village this engine, this, and you could feel the energy. You could walk down the street and there'd be performances. A friend of ours had a puppet theater right over there and you would just walk by and there'd be these amazing performances coming out of nowhere and you'd hear bands playing and that's gone but we are here because it's the neighborhood that the store started in and it has a feel to it the east village just has a feel it's still a neighborhood although there are high rises going up on every block that's making us a little sad but you know we're we're sticking it out here evan thanks so much thank you we're a holdout for better or for worse or you know whether it's a great idea or really a dumb idea i don't know uh but we're here which is the good part so mike thanks so much thank you very much mike zone and evan michelson are the owners of obscura antiques and oddities at 207 avenue a in manhattan if a trip to the catacombs of paris isn't in your near future perhaps you want to pay a visit to the gold bar in the nolita neighborhood of manhattan that is if you can get in More on that in a moment. The hip venue has walls adorned with golden skulls. I caught up with one of the partners who showed me around. My name is Sean Rose. I'm one of the partners at Gold Bar. So, Sean, what's the story behind Gold Bar? So, Gold Bar is 11 years old. The story actually behind it is uh, Rob McKinley, who's the designer of the space, came up with this concept of a uh, count of Italian heritage. And the Count was a mysterious uh, individual, but who was obsessed with opulence. Um, and through Rob's travels during the, uh, the process of uh, developing the concept, came up with the idea of uh, the gold skulls, which is uh, you know, one of the things that we're most known for. And all these pictures, uh, portraits that you see around the room, are uh, of people that were affiliated with the startup of the venue. And uh, you know, the idea was supposed to be that this was the Count's, uh, you know, private hosting space to entertain uh, the many guests and obviously the gold and the chandeliers and everything, the richness of the space was uh, indicative of the opulence of the, uh, of the account. This is radio, of course, so people can't see these skulls. Why don't you describe this space for us and these skulls? On uh, each side of the space, on the left and right side of the room, uh, you have what is uh, combined 2,700 gold, uh, gold leaf skulls. It was actually inspired by the from the catacombs, and uh, the room is somewhat separated into uh, the front bar area, bar room, and uh, the back lounge. Uh, we have beautiful crystal chandeliers above, um, both on the bar and uh, in the lounge, uh, and gold dome ceilings, uh, gold floors, uh, gold chains. It's gold bar. <laughs> Are these replicas of skulls, or are these actual skulls? 
I don't know. <laughs> no, no, these are a combination of different uh, resin materials. Um, so obviously they're not people that we're trying to hide. They were actually uh, created by one of the guys who did the sets from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. They're unique to Goldbar. The actual design is a couple of different versions of the skull, but they're laid out on top of each other and uh, makes for a pretty cool scene. What's the typical reaction when people walk into this space? People are generally pretty awed. Uh, you know, the, the room's 11 years old. It's, it, it has stood the test of time in New York. You know, uh, nightclubs in New York don't uh, generally tend to make it this long. The gold skulls are obviously, uh, you know, one of the focal points of the room. Ironically, when the venue was first opened, photography was not allowed in the room. As the shift came to social media and all of the things that came along with it, photography started becoming uh, acceptable, and it's probably one of the most photographed rooms in the city that's not maybe a uh, specific landmark like a museum or uh, you know Central Park or something of that nature. I'm sure anybody who scans through their Instagram feed will see many, many uh, poses in front of these skulls. Even your floor is gold here at Gold Bar. It is. Definitely not the easiest to maintain, but it is. Now, you're pretty understated outside. There's no big sign that says gold bar. Well, we actually have giant wood doors with uh, gold uh, falcon head door knockers. Uh, that, that was always the intention. You know, the neighborhood has evolved over the 11 years, but when the, when the venue first uh, opened, uh, specifically on Broom Street, was a pretty quiet block. There wasn't very much going on here, specifically after hours, and it was always supposed to be... Uh, an understated uh, situation. It's always been kind of, if you're known, you, you come in. If you're not, you just kind of uh, move past. Uh, we've never really done any signage um, or any uh, major uh, points outside, no barricades, no, no nothing that the typical nightclub uh, does. We, we really have tried to keep it uh, understated and kind of private. So that said, how hard is it to get into Gold Bar? I guess it really depends on who you are. You know, we, we've always uh, tried to take the approach of, uh, you know, it, it's a very family-oriented space. I know that might sound a little odd for a nightclub, uh, but a lot, of our, uh, a lot of our family or guests, clients, whatever you want to look at it, uh, are people that come, you know, several times a week, every week for, you know, years and years and years. Uh, so it's kind of just really a knowing the people involved, getting involved uh, with those people, you know, and really just being a nice person. We really, the biggest thing we try to keep out is people who don't know how to behave so well. You don't want the riffraff? Never, no. So right now you are closed to the public at this point in time. It is quiet in here, but what's a typical night like? Much like most other, you know, nightlife venues, uh, you know, the night starts off on a mellower note. Uh, the, the music isn't as loud. The, the environment's not as dark. Uh, you know, everything in here, as you can see, but the listeners can't, is, a, you know, the lighting's a very big part of the space. You know, back here in the, in the lounge, the, the lighting's set to really give a nice glow to the skulls when the, when the chandeliers are down and when it's dark. We keep the front half, the bar room, a little bit uh, brighter the same way on a music level. We keep the front half, the volume a little lower and the, the back is, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, lively. Uh, someone, someone actually said to me that uh, last week that Goldbar is like the mullet of clubs. You know, business in the front, party in the back. But uh, you know, as a night, everything's set here in a way so that the night, as the night goes on, uh, the energy from a nightlife capacity grows. So the lighting gets a little bit dimmer, music gets a little bit louder and more energetic, and uh, 
you know, by uh, one thirty, two o'clock back here in the in the lounge, people are, you know, up and dancing on couches and uh, having a great time. And, you know, we again, we try to keep the front a little bit more feasible for people to be able to interact and talk and, uh, you know, have enjoy a drink while still being able to, you know, speak to the person next to them without screaming. How important is it to get the music right when you have a club like this? Well, I think that the music right is important in any type of hospitality environment. Uh, as far as Goldbar is concerned, you know, we really we really haven't deviated very much from the original format of uh, the music 11 years ago. Uh, Johnny Lennon, who's one of our partners, has been doing the programming here pretty much since the beginning. Um, it's always been a mixture of every different type of genre, but we've really kind of stayed away from the house electronic uh, music scene. Uh, we're known for being one of the uh, few spaces in the city that's still pretty heavily devoted to hip-hop music. Um, we've actually done a, you know, a series of live performances over the past couple months. Uh, you know, just uh, Sunday night, Nas was here performing. Uh, we had uh, Slick Rick and Dougie Fresh uh, the previous week, DMX, Rev Run. So, you know, we try to stay uh, loyal to the, uh, the hip-hop roots of what uh, we've been known for. Uh, this space has also been known as a launching pad for a lot of the DJs in that world. And uh, it's always our goal uh, through John normally to find this young and up-and-coming talent. What's your history in New York City nightlife? It's a long one. Um, I started uh, really old-school street promoting uh, at probably 18, 19 years old. Started off sliding flyers under doors and putting posters up and handing flyers outside of uh, out of clubs, and then I eventually, you know, moved my way into, you know, promoting, then promotional director, then uh, you know, event planner, uh, eventually director of ops, and then uh, almost six years ago we bought this space, and uh, I've pretty much done just about everything there is to do in a nightclub. Uh, I've worked door. I've uh, managed have done a little bit of everything what was your first impression when you walked through the doors here it's a long time ago but i i mean i always thought the space was amazing uh it's it's so unique um i don't think that there's any mistake uh if you see someone in a picture that you know they're in gold bar uh it's 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 one of the great things is you know uh, especially again being that uh instagram and social media become such a big part uh part of our society when someone posts a picture even if they don't tag i don't have to be worried about that as most other business owners would everybody knows that's gold bar uh, the design's been copied in several other cities and uh locations not with the gold bar name but uh, people have tried to you know use the skull uh the skulls and and whatnot uh but i think that you know that's a it's a great part of what the space is about. You just know what it is. And I think that everybody who walks in has the same feel, uh, feeling they're surprised by it. The other thing that's great is, is because the design's been so timeless and there's been so much attention paid towards keeping the space uh, up to date, making changes every couple of years that are subtle, but that you know kind of freshen up the space. It doesn't look like a space that's been used for 11 years. Uh, you know, A lot of people that have had experiences going into bars, nightclubs, restaurants during the day when the lights are up, you know, you, you see how beat up these spaces get. Whereas normally when people walk in this room during the day, they're like, wow, I can't believe how, what good shape the space is in. 
so the design's been timeless. The, the materials were made to last. Uh, you know, we freshen up the space every couple of years just to add a little bit of new life and element. But it, I think it always wows. And, you know, the, it's, it, it also allows for versatility of space. We do, you know, nightlife business, but at the same time, we have weddings here and corporate functions and part, uh, product launches and photo shoots. We've been in, you know, numerous TV shows and movies and videos. Uh, so it, it really allows for the space to be able to be used for so many different functions and activities, so to speak. Is anything in here actually gold, gold, gold? Besides the color? No, I don't think so. I'd probably be a lot wealthier if there was, but uh, no. Um, I, I, no, nothing, nothing that I could think of is uh, actual gold. What about the paintings? Are they from one specific artist in particular? These are actually photos. Oh, these are photos. They look like paintings. Were, they're actually photos that were converted to look like uh, old oil paintings. So uh, a full photo shoot was done with, uh, and again, these aren't uh, models or... Uh, you know, these were people that were really like involved with the space. One of these people was uh, a construction worker on the space, an accountant. Uh, you know, this is the original owner's dogs. Um, so a photo shoot was done. Uh, everybody was put into costume, dressed up, lighting, everything done. And then the pictures were taken and converted into uh, what looks like oil paint. The ceiling is pretty phenomenal as well. Gold, too. Yeah. That's actual gold leaf, so maybe that answers your gold question. You know, uh, it's it, I again I wasn't involved in the uh, the build out of the space, but uh, I heard it was quite the task. You know, the between the doming and the uh, the leafing of everything. All right, anything else, Sean, about gold bar that you'd want to add that we didn't talk about? No, you should just probably come. You'd have a lot of fun. I'll be privileged to get through the doors. <laughs> you know, people. Sean, thanks so much. My pleasure. John Rose is one of the partners at Gold Bar in the Nolita neighborhood of Manhattan. More info at goldbarnewyork.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante, and thank you for listening. Listening.